0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Son of Sam Chronicles. I'm Rocker Mike. Top left, we got Rob Rossi, Chris Jr., top right. And we have a very special guest today, Dr. Mike Caparelli. He has written a fantastic new book called um, Monster Mirror, 100 Hours with David Berkowitz, also known as The Son of Sam. How are you doing today, Mike? Great to be on. I'm good. Thank you. Yeah, fantastic. I'm glad you're on, too. Um... I think we're just going to go right into this. There's a lot to, to unpack with this book. Um, I read a few chapters, and um, it's it's fantastic. It's different than any other Son of Sand book I've ever read. Oh, so, okay. Very different. Very different. And uh, it, it it touches on things that I don't think has even ever been discussed. Obviously, you spent a 100 hours or a little bit more, 100 hours with David, uh, which is more than anybody. Okay, I think even more than Maury Terry and Abramson combined, uh, you know, really, you know, I'd say, it, since the time he's been incarcerated, he probably knows you best, and and you know him better than than anybody that that's visited him. So I think you have a, quite a perspective, and to write a book from that perspective, I think is pretty amazing. Uh, before we get into the the meat and potatoes of the book, I uh, I just want you to. You know, give a little bit of information about yourself. Um, I know you're a retired pastor, uh, so you have that perspective. And also, uh, you know, I just wanna where can we get this book? I know it's out right now. Yeah, well, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, about two and a half hours from New York City, an hour from Boston. Uh my stepfather who played a big role in my childhood was from the Bronx. So went back and forth to uh New York City a lot as a kid. And uh you know, grew up in a broken home. My my biological dad was in prison. Although in our family, being Italian-American, uh, it was said that he was in school. That's the euphemism of <laughs> Italian use. I love that in the book, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> I love that part of the book, Mike. My, my father actually still, to this day, here I am in my mid-40s, says, you know what, I went to law school. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm 45 now. We can get beyond this. He didn't go to law school. But... Um, <laughs> yeah. So, grew up in a broken home. Probably, my compassion for inmates began, uh, you know, visiting my dad in prison. Generous, fun. We put in the back of his pickup truck, um, taking places, Disneyland, New York, you name it. So, I I knew the man, I knew the monster, right? Uh, and you know, I that whole stigma, the whole what I call, well, not what I call, but what sociologists call the horn effect. It was the idea of putting a horn. On someone's head or horns on their head, demonizing them and not able to see uh, the humanity. Um, I understood that at a young age. And then at 17 years old, I'm locked up, in juvenile jail, my own, you know, shenanigans. Uh, and I gave my life to Christ shortly after that time. My whole life changed from that point on. Eventually, pastor church, uh, pastor for 16 years. The congregation was predominantly people from the mission, uh, ex-felons, people that come out of prison uh, in recovery. So that was my practical experience for 16 years, working alongside those that were from very dysfunctional backgrounds. Uh, we used to always say at our church that we reach people from jail and we reach people from Yale. Um, I, I had a higher education, bachelor's, master's degree, eventually a PhD in behavioral science. But really, you know, I got more degrees than a thermometer, but still... I'm a street kid. That's just my background. I've had enough time with me. A lot of urban colloquialisms. It's just who I am. Right. Uh, but the education gave me some insight in dealing with human behavior. My PhD is in uh, advanced studies in human behavior. Back when I resigned from pastoring, uh, I took three jobs as an adjunct professor at a college in Massachusetts, or in New Hampshire. And then one in Rhode Island. Some of it is online, and others uh, other classes are actually in person. Uh, I teach abnormal psych, social psych, criminal psych, uh, human growth and um, (laughs) development—you name it. So that's my background. Um, I I love pastoring. After suffering two heart attacks, a few heart attacks, I had a minor heart attack, and then about maybe a year later, um, had the Widowmaker, which kills eighty-three percent of the people. I was punching (laughs) the bag. Um, going around sparring in the gym with a friend and just hit, hit the ground. My jaw locked uh, an hour later in the surgery room at Rhode Island Hospital, put four stents in my arteries. And wow. uh, pastoring was stressful, uh, to say the least. It was a very stressful occupation as much as I loved it. Um, but right now with authoring, traveling, I've been in venues in 18 states speaking on mental health in the last one year. Alaska to Chicago to New York, New Jersey, and I'm all over the place. I speak in prisons, um, speak in churches, um, speak in colleges, um, mainly on the subject of mental health. And that's really the focus of the book, is the mental health factors, as well as some of the spiritual influences behind David's crimes. Okay, that's very, very interesting. Uh, quite a, a different qualification that a lot of people to have written books in the past. You know, you, you definitely, you know, PhD in behavioral studies and also the Christian perspective as a pastor. Um, where can we get this book right now, Monster Mirror? You can go on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Book a Million, any of the major distributors and order the paperback. Uh, book Baby, I don't remember the exact website, but they have a high cover. Actually, here it is right here. Um, the Dusk Jacket. Hardcover copy of the book, which is really well done. Um, the foreword has been written by Michael Frances. Yes, yeah, My, the name. is a friend of mine, maybe fifteen years. Uh, Michael was uh, priorly part of organized crime. He was a underboss in the Colombo crime family. Um, gave his life to Christ. He's been traveling the world. He used to speak at our church every year. Um, he wrote the foreword, and uh, there's also some pretty pretty well known. Doctors like Dr. Daniel e. Men, Dr. Caroline Lee. These are some real popular names today in Hollywood. Um, you can go on YouTube, find lectures, TED Talk, and talks by these people that read the book, uh, interviewed me. Um, or at least Caroline Lee is interviewing me. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm gonna be going on our show. Daniel E. Men read the book, uh, gave a blurb for it. Um so lots of endorsements, a lot of networking involved with this, and uh some big opportunities ahead with uh, and the book and press releases schedule. Okay, okay. So I mean, after reading the first couple of chapters of your book, I, I, I'm i not going to buy your book unless you autograph it. That's how good it is. <laughs> <laughs> I <know> it <laughs> well, we want three autograph books here. I mean, we want to autograph books. We're not. We're not buying anything <laughs> until that <laughs> happens. So, so, Mike, let me ask you. um What, you know, what was the the thought process into even getting into a book, writing a book about, about David? Why why did you pick Son of Sam as opposed to another, another killer? Well, David is not the first um, person with his background that I've, uh, I've had a relationship with. Um, There there were two others, definitely psychopathic in the present. Yeah playing games, a lot of manipulation, and uh, didn't really go that far with the two of them. I wasn't really interested in writing the book. It was more prison chaplaincy. Um, I'd, I'd worked in the prisons, going into a ministry, uh, and those two just kind of, you know, those relationships reached the impasse. David, I just sent him one day, back in 2021, a copy of my prior book called Dr. Jesus, which is a book on mental health issues for a global perspective, I mailed it to him with a Christmas card. Within two weeks, he wrote me a letter back, and he agreed to meet. And when I met him, he simply told me, "You know, I I I would appreciate a guy of your like, qualifications telling my story because you have a respect for my faith, you understand the faith, but at the same time, you have a background in mental health. So right away, I became interested. You in know." teaching these classes in the college, you know, that's where my head is living, sleeping on these subjects continually. Just started meeting with David and we, we decided to write the book and, you know, we narrowed down the focus that it would be the factors behind the crimes as well as his present day life in shortcut and his conversion experience and the impact it's had on his personality. It was really a mutual thing. I can't say that I, I partly initiated it because I sent the book and the Christmas card and then he responded with the desire to meet him, went, and somewhere along the way in that first session, the first conversation, back in 2022, with a mask on my face because it was COVID, um, we decided it would be a great idea to tell the story. Wow. Wow. Okay. You're like a natural fit, it seems. For this yeah. Term. It was yeah. what he was looking for. He had Christians. Priorly, write a book, but more from, you know, the Christian perspective, kind of puddle deep when it came to mental health issues, and then of course, there's been a whole slew of books written on the secular mental health side, no regard for his his faith. Right. About the combination of the two, had made me the prime candidate to tell the story. Okay, I'm so, gonna I'm gonna go uh, into uh I'm gonna go into an intro the introduction section here of your book. It it starts off with a quote from Dostoevsky. It says, nothing is easier than to denounce the evildoer. Nothing is more difficult than to understand him. And then you mentioned how you took the horns off of David Berkowitz, the convicted killer. And you just mentioned the horn effect a few minutes ago. Uh, What do you mean by that? And what was the, uh, the full process with that? Well, there's a lot of data to support this phenomenon noticed the it's actually cognitive distortion um it's more cognitive psychology i said social psychology earlier, i misspoke more cognitive it's in the mind mm-hmm. that when we uh find out some character defect about someone right away it's very difficult for us to see past that character defect so our, our assessment of the individual um once we notice a particular character defect becomes very narrow and we don't really take into account the humanity of who they are. Now, that's very easy to do if somebody has David's background um, and has done the dastardly deeds that he's committed. It's, it's real easy to put the ones on him. The problem with that is once we put that horn effect, or once we come under that horn effect, um, really understanding what went into these crimes, uh, our understanding becomes very shallow. So I, I make the argument in the book rather than calling him a psychopath. Pretty easy to do. He certainly would, he uh, did qualify uh, for the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder, which is a clinical term for psychopathy. Psychopathy is not a clinical term; right. it's not in the DSM. It's more of a co- uh, a, a cultural construct. Right. And he would definitely qualify as antisocial and psychopath. He would no doubt <laughs> the crimes that he committed. Um, I say rather than doing that, let's bracket psychopathy. And let's focus on some of the, the struggles, the mental health factors that we can all relate to. Right. It is the deal. Every time some, some crime is committed, uh, families, parents, friends, they're always saying, I, I would have never thought my son, my daughter. So the profile is, is ever expanding. You know, I mean, I go back 70 years. There was an idea that criminals were more introverted, hermit. You know, then Ted Bundy shows up. And he's this Gregorious personality and he shatters the mold. And the whole right. it keeps shattering. It keeps shattering because I believe that anybody is capable of anything, providing the right circumstances. Now uh, that's, that's a hard pill, it's a giant yeah. pill for us to swallow because we wanna believe that I would never do that. It gives us a sense of moral superiority to call David and every like him, you know, a monster. And that's the idea I'm challenging and challenging in the book is that the factors behind these crimes, shame, isolation, abandonment trauma, um, head trauma, anger. the fact of anger, a lot of the factors that are behind this are as human and as universal as it gets, and that's a bit of a for many people, especially sanctimonious, self-righteous people, to swallow. well dead, I'm sorry. Like I have a question on that. Let's say you and David Berkowitz met each other before he was a murderer, right? Before he, he actually went, went off that deep end. And, you know, I, I realize I'm, I'm, I'm making, you know, I'm making these this really perfect, but you, I know that you're saved. I know that, you know, you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you've led, you know, you've led people in your faith. If David Berkowitz met you before he became a killer, would he have still become a killer if he had met you you know, or someone like you, you well, know, and he really. That's a, good question, actually. That's a really good question. That I've actually thought about myself. You know, I've kind of gone in that time machine in my mind back 1975, 74, whenever, uh, before these crimes began and, uh, you know, envisioned, you know, what, what would have happened if I met him? How would it have went down? What? I mean, maybe a broader question to ask is, you know, could have there been any preventive factors? Could have there been anything that have, could have happened? Sure. To, to prevent this from happening. And uh, I, it's, hard, it's hard to answer that. I do, what I do know is I know that there were people I've passed in for 16 years that were very close. They were the yeah. cut of self-sabotage, collateral destruction homicide, suicide, right at the cusp. Right, They're welcomed into the church. They have an encounter with God. They assimilate into the the community. They find their place. They find their purpose. And now all of a sudden, they're on the right track. They've repented from the wrong track. So I've seen that happen time and time again. I know many people that if, if they were diagnosed at the worst possible moment, Um, they probably would have been classified as a psychopath. I, you know, this is contrary to what a lot of people believe. This is going to fly in the face of our cancel culture. But I tend to believe that psychopathy is more is uh, psychopathy is more of a state than it is a trait. Um, I think it's something that if if a lot of people look back at certain dark periods of their life, yes, exhibit the lack of empathy. They exhibit the manipulative tendencies. They exhibit the exploiting behaviors it just takes a real honest right yeah I, I i think i guess what i was trying to get at was it, it, it seems like what well, you said is it's hard and it is a hard pill to swallow Any of us can you know become a david berkowitz right maybe maybe not david berkowitz exactly but in our own way become so far from who we really are due to the environment that's not not, not, not not necessarily what's in our hearts or in our soul or mind, really, yeah. at one certain point. Just you become yeah. a totally different person based on the environment. Altogether. And I think, guys, I think, guys, I think it's it's a slippery slope. Okay. You know, you mentioned three uh you know um three things that he was experiencing isolation, anger, and shame. Right. And I think that, you know even just one of those is enough to tip people. But if you're, if you're experiencing all three and there's nobody that you have to talk to, and you know, there's no, there's, you don't have the the support network with friends or, or even in therapy, if you don't have that, yeah. you're going to, you're going to go down and, and, and it's, it's very easy to do that. Now, you know, you mentioned in the book that with the right set of circumstances, even a Catholic nun could crack you in the head with a tire iron. <laughs> I think that I've always I've always said, and you know I'm sure you'll agree, it's basically the same thing. Is that I think anybody in the right circumstances is capable of, of, of even you know, killing or or you know doing something that they normally wouldn't do. Okay, and you could be you could be angry enough. Okay. Uh, road rage is a perfect example of that people experience road rage all the time I know so I've been in cars with people that th- th- any other time you would never see that kind of behavior but when they get in the car they have road rage <laughs> uh, you know and we know people die from that you know it's the sad <laughs> thing you know but um, let me ask you Mike uh, you know your first meeting with David Berkowitz was on Friday April 1st 2022 um, I know you said that you know he had read your book and wanted to uh, possibly work with you at that point. But what was it? I mean, what was it like when you first met him? I mean, what was going through your head? You know, you're sitting with a guy that's convicted of these murders. Uh, you know, were you were you scared at all? I mean, what, what was the, what was going through your head? I don't want to sound like a tough guy, but I I wasn't scared. Okay. Maybe awkward would be a a good word. Uh, You're meeting somebody for the first time in a very anomalous setting. You typically meet people for the first time behind bars, although I've done prison ministry, so I I do know what that's like um, somewhat. Most of the time I've I've already met them in either on the streets I've met them and they're in prison now, or I've met them maybe in a Bible study within the prison. Um, And then somebody I level of notoriety so definitely a little bit off you know what i'm not exactly sure what to say uh but you know when you put aside the notoriety you put aside the persona because there's david berkowitz the persona and there's david berkowitz the person uh most people know david berkowitz the persona right some of the persona a big percentage of it is what's been created by media Others are uh, sound bites from his own words, isolated moments in time. I mean, God forbid if they took snippets of things I've said through the years made oh, yeah. a full assessment of who I am now Forget based on it. those snippets. Um, you know, so his persona is one thing. The person, I said, you know what? I'm going to put aside the persona. It's, it's the chalkboard is completely erased. I'm going to hit reset and be real intense about this and give this guy a to tell me who he is, and taking into account any preconceived notions I have, not allow those preconceived notions to cloud uh, my judgment. And when I did that, I found a guy that was very relatable. I'm expecting this extraterrestrial being, and you know he's not. He's just this this guy. He's a very relatable guy. He's like a, a kid I grew up with in the neighborhood. In some ways, he mirrors <laughs> back to me. characteristics of myself. Hence, the reason why I called it Monster mira I'm <laughs> expecting to look into the eyes of a monster, um, not present David Berkowitz but past David Berkowitz I'm expecting to see a monster when he tells me his childhood story. Instead, I'm seeing a mirror. My mind is constantly conjuring up parallels between some experience he shares and my own experience. Sure, uh, right. after every session, 34 sessions, and say there's a fine line between what we call the psychopath. And the general population. Oh, definitely. That, you know, goes back to what you were saying on all those three points of isolation, anger, and shame. You know, let's Uh, take isolation. If I could just one second. Isolation alone, which by the way, you know, I I came up with nine themes. I call it a recipe for violence. You know, each theme is an ingredient. You can't really say one ingredient makes up the eggplant palm. It's a collection of ingredients. Yeah. Ah, Let's just isolate one one ingredient for a second. Let's take isolation. Uh, University of Japan has conducted countless studies on rodents. They take a group of rodents, they isolate a sample of those rodents, put them in isolation for two weeks. After two weeks of isolation, they reintroduce the isolated sample back to their community. And right away, the isolated rodents are attacking aggressively attacking the rodents that that's their tribe that's their community so isolation you know from from an adult perspective perspective it increases on neuropeptides which increases blood pressure makes us irritable edgy aggressive you've heard the saying at parties you show up at a party some guy is there he's argumentative he's arguing with everybody and what do they say at the party they go he doesn't get out much. We say that because intuitively we know when people don't get out much, when their are isolated, too long. Uh, you know, when we are out of touch, or when we lose touch, we're out of touch. We're out of touch. Right, right. Um, and I, it makes me think of uh, the horn effect again, okay? Because when David was arrested, and then as the story evolved over time, you know, he was, he was Perceived to be a, a wallflower at the party, you know, didn't was antisocial or awkward, but yet we 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 know that's not really true. Okay, he did have friends, and he you know even had girlfriends, and um, he, however, in your book, he goes into that a little bit. He, he mentions how he couldn't relate with people. Uh, he could be talking to somebody, but maybe just keep it like general. Conversation like about the weather, something, or you know, couldn't really connect uh, with anybody, and, and, and that caused this isolation. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, there's a big difference between being with people and bonding with people. Yes, David Berkowitz uh, grew up in the most populated city in the United States of America. I think we gave this yeah. the movie Taxi Driver, which was a movie that played a big influence in his crimes. Sure, related to Travis Bickle because. The guy is, you know, he's a taxi driver, so he's a part of a network of other taxi drivers. He's got some friends, uh, certainly more isolated than most people, but in the sense that he's around people all the time. David was part of the Appalachian Mountain Club. A lot of stories about that. Um, A lot of stories about his interactions with other uh, youth climbing the mountain. Actually, they dropped off. In Jordan, not far from the prison Where he is now You can see through the window of, of one of the areas In the prison, the spots on the mountains And the bones yeah. Part of baseball teams uh, Part of the volunteer firemen yeah. uh, um, All these different groups But so His isolation wasn't really the result of seclusion We can't put him in the category Of Ted Kaczynski The no. no Obama He's, uh, his isolation is the result of secrecy, not seclusion, right? So he's people. He's got a lot of sidekicks, but he's got more secrets than he has sidekicks. And you know, you've got a lot of secrets. It's, you're not really bonded. So that, that need for connection, social connection, even though you're with people, you're not of people, it's really never fulfilled. You still feel lonely in the crowd. Yeah, A lot of people out there that feel lonely in a crowd. They know exactly what I'm talking about. What I'm saying resonates with many listeners right now that you got a hundred friends, 5,000 on Facebook, but when you're in that crowd, you still feel all alone. Well, that's the, that's the problem with today with social media. I, I, in in my opinion, I I think that as much as the world's gotten smaller because of social media and Facebook and whatever, you know, you could be friends with somebody, you call it friends. Maybe it's not really uh you can be friends with somebody you know six thousand miles away okay but you know do you really know them do you really connect with them do people tell the truth on social media most people don't okay uh you know i mean you can even have a different picture who knows if you really look like that okay and you know people put up these these images and 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 these facades and you don't really know them um i think also it it Because we rely on social media so much today, I think, especially in America, I think it's taken away from the social skills that we need to get by on a day-to-day basis. And I see this with young younger kids, not so much people our age, but because we grew up at a time we were all formative years, we didn't have the internet or anything close to close to it. So, but with the younger people, I see that they're more, you know, I've been to parties for instance with younger kids where they're just sitting in a room texting and they're, they're texting the guy sitting across from them or the girl sitting across yeah. from them in the same room it sounds funny and it, it, in some sense it is but at the same time it's kind of sad because you don't have with social media you don't have that connection now David obviously for some reason Uh, obviously just not isolation. He had anger issues. He was in therapy as a kid. Uh, You know, he was prone to violent outbursts, um, all kinds of issues like that, that obviously didn't go away as he got older. He just dealt with things in a different way. um, Let me him here one second, uh, Mike. Um, Let me ask you a question. With David, like he he was, David technically is Italian. I'm sorry? No. David Berkeley is technically Italian. He was born into an My Italian party. family and then he was adopted by these other things. So from the, from the beginning, he, was, he probably had abandonment issues because his original family, you know, gave him up for adoption his, right away. He, his, mother's ma- his mother's maiden name wasn't uh, De Falco. That was her married name. She had an affair yeah. with a Jewish guy. So I think he's all but Jewish. He had a Jewish guy in him. David is Hungarian by nationality by birth. Right. And his uncle was his uh, biological mother's uh, previous lover's last name. Oh, I see. Yeah. His biological last name would have been Kleinman. They were Hungarian Jews. Uh, wow. Also, the Berkowitzes were also Hungarian Jews. Um, not unusual. The liaison between the two families, reading named Mrs. Miller. She uh, is hooked yeah. up the Berkowitzes with David's biological mother. Wow. Uh, You know, she put some thought into uh, where this child would be best placed. Wow. Hungarian Jew biological family, Hungarian Jew adopted family. I mean, I'm I'm speculating here. Right. That she was, um, Mrs. Miller was, you know, intentional about where, uh, where David would go. She called the Berkowitz family, called Pearl up on the phone, and said, there's a baby that's up for adoption. And Pearl and, and Nat Nathan, uh, they had been waiting for a while to have a baby. Um, drove to Brooklyn Hospital, right on the stoop, right on the steps of Brooklyn Hospital. Four days old, and Pearl um, Berkowitz showed up, and Betty David's biological mother handed him over to to Pearl. Uh, but definitely a issue. Let me say oh, yeah. I don't want I don't want to uh, at all cast a shadow on adoption. I think adoption is wonderful. But I do think we need to see adoption for what it is. Um, there is a trauma that takes place um, on a very instinctual level. Yeah. For cognitive development, that baby is bonding with its mother for nine months in the womb. Yeah. You couldn't think that bonding begins in the classroom. It doesn't begin in the classroom, it begins in the womb. Now you got nine mm-hmm. months of a connection being formed, and now that, that bond is disrupted. Uh, Serial killers are said to be, I think it's seven or eight times more likely to be adopted. A study done this to show mm-hmm. the higher prevalence among serial killings, serial yeah. killers, uh, with adoption and it, cre- it does create an abandonment trauma on a very visceral level that I'm afraid most of us don't even understand. But David from a very young age pushed away his, bur- his uh, adopted parents as wonderful as they were they were great parents they did everything they could to reach him and they said from a young age he was pushing them away and he couldn't even understand why he was pushing them away wow yeah okay. there's, there's there's some truth to the abandonment piece that you're saying i mean i i, I'm, I mean i don't even know I, I i basically agree with that statement but i just in my own interactions with with close friends of mine that have that were adopted they they always, it, it seems like, especially if their parents were in the United States, they always end up seeking out their birth parents in some way, shape, or form. That's yeah. why now yeah. you find out a lot of people look outside the country when they go for adoption because they're worried about their adopted child abandoning them later on for their real parents who are in America. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's a pretty interesting dynamic when you think about it, uh. I just I want to realize. The I don't want to stigmatize adoptees. Most adoptees don't become. Masters. Oh no! No, I get that. He was saying that. Was saying. I, that. Well, I want to put it in perspective. <laughs> yeah, no, Sound bit. Sound bit. Uh, it's one factor. Right. It the it's one piece. You put that piece uh, in the collection of other pieces. Right. Yeah. You know, Anchor. You know, childhood experiences, and now you have a ticking time bomb. Yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, I just think it's, you know, to your point, though, about the abandonment, I mean, it's, there is something extremely unique and special about the bond between that child and the birth parent. Um, You know, it it just doesn't, it doesn't go away. I've seen it in my own friends. That was really the point I was trying to make. We know through medical studies that when a baby's born, an infant in a room full of strangers can detect The odor of its mother. I believe that. Mother amongst a group of people. Sure. There's a bond that's been formed. The bond doesn't begin when the baby's born. The bond begins at conception. And everything that mother experiences, feels. Yes. um, This is a term that uh, one lady named Annie Murphy, who's done a lot of study in this area, she calls it biological postcards meaning that the mom's experiences with the outer world are like postcards being sent the baby, shaping that baby for the world they're about to enter. Kind of like you get a postcard, it tells you, look, if you come to Alaska, here's what you can expect. Look at the picture of Alaska on the postcard. Uh Well, the mom's experiences with the outer environment are affecting that baby, letting that baby know the kind of world that baby's about to enter. Studies have been done on, on uh, fetuses that were in the womb during 9-11. Moms that lived in the lower Manhattan area. This is 22 years ago. Those babies now are 22 years old. Those babies that were in the womb of a mom during 9-11. It's a higher prevalence of PTSD. Stop. And then, really? Yes. Wow. It was important. Because the, because the mother, uh, are you saying it's because uh, the mother experienced it? So the kid experiences it? Biological postcards. There mom you go. Tests, her cortisol levels are up. It's yes. Yes, hormone. baby experiences what mom experienced. Of course. Uh, it's called prenatal programming. You can Google that and you'll find a lot of studies done in this area. And, you know, David's preg- the pregnancy of David, by the way, Betty's pregnancy of David was very tumultuous. Lots of physical altercations between her. Or I shouldn't say lots, there were at least one or two that David knew about, but there was an ongoing stressful uh verbal battle, and there was at least a couple of physical altercations that David knew of between Betty and her love, David's biological father. Betty wanted to keep him. The father wanted nothing to do with the baby, created a lot of strife, and that affects me shaping of the central nervous system of the fetus known as baby tuberculosis. Wow. Okay, wow. So Mike, um, I'm gonna change gears here for a second, just shift sure. out of this topic. One thing that that's very, very interesting about your book is, you know, you 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 bring things from the psychological, modern day uh, perspective of therapy diagnosing what's wrong with people and things like that. Uh, and I obviously that's your your background and your PhD background. But you also talk about demonic possession. And you talk about how certain, uh, well, how basically the modern day system doesn't allow for that at all. And also how some of these things that were wrong with David, or could be wrong with anybody, can lead to demonic possession, open the door to that. Now, my question to you is, do you think David was possessed? And does he think he was possessed? And just kind of elaborate, explain a little bit about demonic possession. Well, let me begin by saying two-thirds of the world believes in demonic activity. In America, uh, we're very rational in our country. Uh, we're so left-brained that our bodies tilt the left when we walk down sidewalks. Um, <laughs> it's just we're very left-brained people, so it's hard for us to understand. This whole supernatural perspective that Africans, people in Asia, all through Europe. Caribbean. The Caribbean, the various, very um, So, you know, you can call it horse and buggy, but here's the deal. Uh, in America, we've got more child trafficking. We've got more mental health issues. So yeah. our purely rational approach doesn't seem to be doing the trick when we're leading the way with serial killings. There are 13 yeah. mass shootings a week in the United States of America. You will find that, those statistics in other countries. Yeah. So you can criticize other countries and we can you know, feel superior in our rational approach, but the facts are, the results, the people in the eating of the pudding, and the pudding doesn't taste so good yet, we've got all sorts of problems sociologically, culturally. So with all that said, I do believe, I believe in natural phenomenon understanding the psyche, understand the mind, mental health, and I believe that beyond this, there is a supernatural reality. Um, I'm a little reluctant in talking about it because right away, you know, you know, perceived as spooky, you know, superstitious. But here's the facts, and everyone has experienced this at one time or another. are moment when you will behave in such a way, maybe you lose your temper, Uh, you back up from the situation and this is what you usually say and you apologize you say I don't know what got into me I'm sorry I that I'm sorry I don't know what possessed me Mm -hmm. right what what are you suggesting when you say that oh no I know that something took over your body and you didn't have any control it was like yeah something whipped up you know I was irritated and something came along and whipped up that irritation into rage how'd that happen now, am I saying that demonic activity, which David does believe he was demonized, that's the word he likes to use. Right. Um, the word possession is kind of, you know, with the movie The Exorcist, it's kind of taken on certain connotations. Yeah. They demonize. Um, you know, being demonized doesn't mean there's no human responsibility. The analogy I give in the book is alcohol. Right. You know, you, you have too many drinks. You know, you're under the influence of some mind-altering substance, and now you're doing things and saying things that you ordinarily wouldn't do? Do we hold a person responsible? We do, because they made the choice. They opened the door for the alcohol or for the substance to a point of intoxication, and whatever they do under that state of intoxication, they should be held liable because they opened the door. So is David responsible? Yes, he's responsible. Sure. But so there have also been, see, we like to polarize. It's like one or the other. And most of the time, it's not one or the other. Most of the time, the truth is a combination of both. He was responsible. There were mental health factors involved. There were, was natural phenomenon in synergy with, from my perspective, spiritual influences. And I do believe in a demonic reality that played a role in this understanding of Wow. Wow. That's that's right there. To that point, and, and this is what I really like about the book. I I I've I think I talked to you once or twice before today. So I don't really know you that well, I but I feel like I got to know you a little bit in the first couple of chapters in the book. And one thing that I've kind of subscribed to since the pandemic is that you know there's Eastern and there's Western medicine, right? In terms of overall health, right? You know. Yes, you want to listen to your your your, your, your doctor um, in America, but there are also remedies that date back, you know, a thousand years that that work for certain things as well to get you a little bit more healthy. What I what I what I what I'm getting from the book, and, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like you've kind of found a, found a way to take your academic approach and your spiritual approach to life and marry them in your, I guess, interactions with David and others. And I think that that's awesome because I don't think the world really views psychological, you know, the the, the human psyche in that, in that way. Um, I, you know, um, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it makes me happy. I mean, it's, it's nice to see. Uh, Well, it's it's a refreshing new outlook. Right, I like the outlook, but I but I, I think it makes a lot of sense as yeah. well. I mean, it's just yeah, you can it, the, a certain environment can allow you or 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 give demons an opportunity to find their ways. They're find their way in, right? Well, you know, if, if, if we accept the reality of a devil and we acquiesce to the idea of demons, right, uh, and we. Understand that a devil or demons is predatory in nature. Sure, any predator, the modus operandi is to prey upon the weak. Yep. So, sure. if someone is weak, if there's vulnerabilities, what we call in the clinical world, risk factors. If there are a number of risk factors, whether it's fatherlessness or sexual abuse or abandonment trauma, whatever it is, you know, predator. Is going to spit that out quickly. I mean, if you talk to child predators, they'll tell you. I mean, the FBI is hundreds of them. to prove that predators look for very amicable people, people that are going to go along to get along, people that are just maybe low self-worth. They're not going to take a strong stance. I mean, FBI has conducted interviews with friends with serial rapists, and they've pretty much... Provided the same set of circumstances on how they pick their phone. They'll show up in a sure. parking lot. They'll approach a lady. This is a very common scenario that you'll hear. And yes. they'll offer the young lady a piece of gum. And she'll say, no. They'll offer it a second time. If she says, I said, I don't want the gum. Elites. If she takes that gum the second time, she goes along to get along. She has a certain level of amicability in her personality. might come from low self-worth. might come from not having a mom or dad, whatever it is. And now that is an indication to that predator she's easy prey. She's right. someone who will cooperate. So all that to say, devil, demons, these are predatory uh, entities and they are going to sniff out vulnerability. David has a lot of risk factors. That yeah. Now let me say this. I know someone's going to say, well, David did you know, deny the devil, and he did claim that the devil was nothing more than a defense mechanism to minimize his own culpability. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of backdrop. Yes, up at Attica, and you know they're making all so- sorts of dog noises because of what he said about the dog. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of pressure from various places, which I described in the book, that it made it easy for David to recant his story about the devil which the New York Times headlines read in the 1970s, I believe 1979, it said Berkowitz recants his devil tale. And uh, there was a lot of pressure there. Now, do I think that David, listen, here's the question I, I beg in the book. Did the devil use David? Right. Or did David use the devil? Right. And my answer to that is both. I do believe David used the devil to feel less culpable. Okay, um, but I, that doesn't mean the devil didn't also use David. In fact, you look <laughs> at it, a toxic relationship: a pimp and a prostitute. The pimp yep. is using the prostitute, but make no mistake about it: the prostitute is also he using the devil. pimp. Right. Right. All toxic relationships—it's two ticks and no dog. They're sucking yeah. the life out of each other. So yeah. Do you take this David and David is using the same? Do you take the same approach with everyone that? Is in a similar situation as David. I mean, not everyone's going to be David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. You know, some you know may have you know committed a million petty crimes that landed him in jail for a significant amount of time. And maybe you've you've talked to that that type as well. I'm sure you have. But do you approach them all the same way, or did this kind of marriage between the what you've learned and through your studies and some of the stuff you kind of understand on the supernatural side? Due to your faith? I approach, I approach any study from a certain worldview. Okay. Way, I mean, I, I know there's going to be criticism on these Christians coming from that worldview, but there's not a scientist on the planet that does not approach the table of research with a set of biases. Okay. In a worldview. That's by fair. View is a Christian Judeo worldview. Right. Uh, I'm is- not ashamed of that. I believe... Uh, Where should I you think, be, by the way? Yeah, I believe in my faith. I believe the Bible's the greatest psychology book ever written. I don't read it as much as it reads me. It's a mirror into the soul. Um, so I, I, I see things through that lens of the scriptures. Um, and I, I teach at a Christian college. I also teach at a secular college, so I'd be careful with references to the Bible in those classes. But in my, in the Christian college, North Point, Massachusetts, um, as an undergraduate, school, I'm able to reference often the scriptures because there's a lot about human behavior and listen, I'm not alone in my opinion, one of the most famous psychologists on the planet right now Dr. Jordan Peterson who I have tremendous respect for um, he's continually citing the Bible the narrative of the scripture to teach us something about human behavior Um, something very special about that book not just the one it reveals about God but what it reveals about me time. Right. time. Okay. All right. Let me, uh, we're going to wind down this first part of the interview. Uh, yeah. We'll be back with the second part real soon. Uh, my final question today, and I got to put you on the spot a little bit here, Mike. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Many people are going to say that, or they believe that David uses people and manipulates them for attention or whatever reasons. He might have okay. Many people believe that his Christian conversion is is not true, it's, it's a bunch of bullshit, okay? And uh they think uh he's fake, okay. And after spending over a hundred hours with him, how would you answer to these skeptical people? I mean, do you believe number one is conversion to Christianity is real or or what? What would you say to people that might go down this reasoning with this reasoning? I think my first question would be, how many hours did you spend with David Berkowitz? Okay. That's the first question. Yes. You know, I, I went into this uh, with the benchmark of 100 hours because I knew it takes time to get to know a person. Uh, when you read the book, you're going to find out that it wasn't all smooth. Wasn't David just said what he said, and I accepted it. A lot of challenges. In fact, uh, I don't want to give away, you know, the end of the book. But yeah, I challenged him on some. Oh yeah, it, um, what I, mean, I read, you did. Sure. Yeah, I mean, well, you read the first few chapters, but when you get into the later chapters of the book, uh, you know, I, I use the illustration all the time. I tell my wife this. you know when you do construction, you have to call it Dig Safe, and Dig Safe lets you know. Yeah, God forbid you should hit a pipe or something no. dangerous. Yeah, I say to my wife all the time, I didn't call Dixie with this one. Now <laughs> right. I like yeah. what I would dig up. I just didn't realize it. I didn't go into this journey with him trying to figure out whether he's part of a cult or not, or whether he did the killings alone or not. Like I didn't even know of Mori Terry. I knew mean, very little. I never read Ultimate Evil. Right. I had to go somewhere. I think I read maybe five pages of it. No disrespect to Mr. Terry of the book, I'm just saying that that wasn't my agenda. My agenda was what's behind these crimes, you personally, your childhood development. That that was my agenda. Uh, But I got a lot more than I bargained for, a lot more surface than I was even looking to find. Many of the findings were serendipitous. They weren't what I planned uh, to discover. And what I did discover throughout it all is that David Berkowitz is sincere. And has he lied? Listen, better questions Have you lied. The University of Massachusetts conducted a study that 60% of Americans can't go 10 minutes without lying. At least once within 10 minutes. <laughs> Anonymous surveys. The University of Massachusetts survey is not alone in that. There's plenty of data to show we lie as people. We lie because we're afraid. We lie because our reputation's at stake. We lie, we lie because we're cornered in. Right. So so I don't go on this moral high horse to like focus on David Berkowitz's lies. I think, unfortunately, most people have a PhD in other people's issues, but they're in kindergarten when it comes to their own issues. Wow. That's, that to me is a hypocrisy that, look, if I see David lie, I don't want to fall into this horror effect. I just simply realize he's a man. I call him out on it. And right and we discuss it, and in the process of discussing it, the truth begins to surface. You yourself will tell you, yes. In your your, um, your time with him, and you say he's sincere, Mm -hmm. Okay, do you feel he's sincere regarding his Christianity? Oh, 100%. 100%. David, the investment he makes, listen, it's very hard to keep up with the side, for 35 years. You know, people say jailhouse conversions. Most jailhouse conversions, six months a year, a few months before the parole hearing, you know, connive those on the parole committee. We're talking about a man for 35 years that has been practicing his faith, discipling guys in the prison, twice a week Bible studies, very consistent about his faith. Is he perfect? Who is perfect? Nobody. No. In fact, I think the thing that made me believe him, ironically, it wasn't his players, it was his flaws. It was when he was transparent about his flaws, seeing him navigate through those flaws, that helped me believe in him. A gemologist looks at two stones. If the stone is too perfect, it's not a diamond. It's a zirconia. If it's a real diamond, it has cracks, it has flaws. The gemologist says that's a real diamond because there's flaws. That over there, it's too perfect, it's too polished, it's not real. It's a cubic zirconium. What well, made me believe David's conversion is real is I saw the flaws, I saw the cracks. He was transparent about them. And he talked them through. That's what made me a believer. Ironically, is not perfection but imperfections. So you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a researcher at the end of the day. Um, I'm not a podcast host like Mike. Mike also has some researching ability in him as well. I don't want to take that away from him. Uh, but, but oh, you know, what, I, what I've kind of taken from David Berkowitz's interactions with other, I, I guess you could call them, you know, uh, mental health professionals or writers or journalists or whomever, is there is a tinge of he really cares what people think about him and how he's being portrayed in the media. Almost in a, in a I don't want to say narcissistic way, because I'm probably using the term wrong. And because you probably know the term way better than I, you can just give me a tongue lashing like you just did about the other stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, with, uh, with, with uh, you know, uh, what was the last time you said a lie? You know what I'm saying? So I, I get that change just from reading his own correspondence with other people, like Abrahamson, for example. The reason why I knew that Abrahamson stuff was mainly BS was because number one, he probably found some time to to learn about Freud in prison, uh, or 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 at least read one of Abrahamson's previous books or studies. But second, in a correspondence that was, I guess included in the correspondence between him and Dr. Abrahamson was a correspondence with his father, Nat, basically saying, Dad, this guy's going to write a much better book about me. I really need you to talk to him. And I'm like, you know, I I was in the middle of an argument about something totally unrelated about Abrahamson's book and, and how it doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of David's story when it comes to the occult and other things. Nonetheless, that stuck with me. It's like, you know, He's, he's just looking for someone to portray him a little bit differently in the media. He doesn't want to be the demon dog guy. You know, he wants to be this other guy who was, who who, who exhibit some of the things you just talked about, which you know, made a lot of sense to me. Uh, you know, the isolation, the shame, etc. A lot of those elements are in what he was talking about with Abrahamson, but it was more in the in, the, in, in relation to how Abrahamson, I guess, you know, practiced his, you know, mental health studies and his belief in how people react in certain situations. Um, I think just jump in here for a second, Chris. I think what you're trying to say is is did, did David tell Abramson what he wanted to hear? Well, you know, no, I know that. What I'm saying is how do you, I guess the long winded way to my question is how do we know, Mike, that after 100 hours he finally figured out a way to tell you exactly what you wanted to hear? We don't <laughs> know that right? No, no, nobody, uh, you can't. You can't answer that. Well, You can have 100% certainty that everything I write about what yeah. he did. It's but, but How fact. How much of uh, the younger, manipulative David is there? Because that guy does exist. Is it, is it a lot, do you think he's a, just a much more mature person now? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I've seen David come full circle many times where if he says something that he feels like he's not being completely sincere, his conscience kicks in, okay, better than most people I know, and he'll come back a day later, maybe ten minutes later. It all depends. You say, let me clarify this. Let, let me let me get to the heart of this. You know, I really, you know, I was maybe deflecting a little bit, or I was maybe not telling you all that I should tell you, like any, any one of us. I mean, I agree that David Berkowitz cares so much what people think, we all do. It, you put yourself in his your shoes. Yeah. Your name is in every document, not every, a lot of documentaries. You, you have a certain stigma surrounding your name. Let's see how much you care huh. about what people think. I, yeah. guess, so you're, I guess you're right. People, he's not yep. people that say they don't care what people think, they're lying. Fact, right. When you tell me you don't care what people think, it's a Freudian slip that you do care because yeah. you know that I know that you don't care. No, I know. I listen. I, 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 I I'm, I'm the worst at that. Don't I don't care do what they think. Meanwhile, like people go on social media in front of five thousand people and put on, on social media for five thousand people. Yeah, they put, they put. I don't care what people think. Really, you, you, you can't. If five thousand know that you don't care, right? You inadvertently admitted that you can't. Listen, yeah. I'm born again. I wasn't born last night. I'm right. a Christian. My Christianity is not a naivety. I'm, I'm from the streets. I'm educated in human behavior. Spend enough time with someone. You see the consistencies, the inconsistencies. You know, facts don't line up. You call someone on it. And probably the best indication of a man's character, and you only see this after spending a lot of time with them, not their actions. Yeah. Now, people can take actions. Reactions. Yep. How someone reacts. Yep. Reaction, reaction is action in real time. It's action under pressure, action when provoked, action under stress. Wow. Reactions is a better litmus test than actions. Shakespeare said it, all the world is a stage. It's, wow. it's men are despians, or players. We put on a show, actions, people say actions tell us about someone's character. People act all the time. They, they pretend. Yeah. Uh, and that goes back yeah. to social media thing. You know, That's people act on that. Yeah. All right, let's wrap up this uh, part one right now, and um, I think it'll be a good time to wrap it up. And um, we're going to see you with part two in uh, two weeks. With um, the, we continue the interview with the Doctor Mike Mirror, right? Monster Mirror. Can you show the book one more time? Because that cover looks beautiful. And we'll we'll come back with part two of this great interview with Mike, uh, Chris Jr. and uh, Rocker Mike. All, All right. right, guys, and uh, we'll see you in two weeks, and have a good one, guys. Thank you.